nearly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came upon the scene, he blew people away. You study the beginning of the Gospels, and you read about the reaction that he receives from people. I mean, he blows people away pretty quickly. Now, for us, it's easy to see that, and we can read that, we can imagine it, especially surrounding his power and the miracles that he would perform. The healings that he would do, the the things that he was able to accomplish because of his power. People would come from all over, bringing the sick to be healed, bringing the blind to be healed, the lame to be made well. People would bring from all over to see Jesus, to react to him. But as we study through the Gospels, we find very quickly that it isn't just his power that people are blown away by. It also was his teaching. You see, in the way that he was teaching was so drastically different from the way anybody else was teaching at that time. And people would listen to what he says, and it would be so different from what they had been hearing from their religious leaders that they would be blown away by that. A great example, if you're still open there in Matthew chapter 5, you can turn just a a few pages to the very end of what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And and Jesus gives us this, this incredible lesson about discipleship and those that would be a part of his kingdom. And he is sharing with the people, multitudes of people, wild things, life-altering things, things they had never heard of before. And at the very end of that text, Matthew tells us this in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 27, Jesus begins, or ends, excuse me, speaking. And it says there in verse 28 that so it was, When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. They knew what the scribes and the Pharisees and the kind of teaching that they would put forward. And Jesus was so drastically different from that. So they were astonished at his teaching. Life-altering. So that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Not here in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but what was read for us a moment ago from Matthew chapter 5 at the beginning. It's fitting for us. Here we are at the very beginning of the year, the first Lord's Day that we have in this year. And my thought process in putting a lesson together, I had always thought pretty early on, I'm going to do something about a beginning. John asked me earlier this week, he was in the office, and he said, do you know what you're going to preach on on Sunday? And I said, I haven't really settled on it yet, but it's going to be the beginning of something. And I ended up between this lesson that we're going to spend some time studying in Matthew chapter 5, and the other thing that I was going up against was from Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of sin. And then I thought, that's not super uplifting here for the first Uh, for Sunday, so I'm going to hold the beginning of sin. I'll put that in the coffer for later, and we'll come back to that. But I want us to spend some time here at the beginning of this sermon. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to really spend all of our time in verses 3 through 10 surrounding this teaching of the Beatitudes. 
Now, I want us to see and to understand a couple of things from the outset. It's possible that this passage is familiar to you. It's possible that you have a, a huge chunk, if not all, of this passage memorized, that you could recite these Beatitudes from memory. It's possible that you have read this passage tens or hundreds of times even. But I want us this morning to come to a couple of realities about what this passage is about. And the first one is, this morning I want you to understand that when it comes to a being a disciple of Jesus, and I hope that that's what all of us are striving to be this morning. We're here, we're worshiping God. We're striving to be disciples of Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom. That is a desire that I'm hoping all of us want and all of us have. But we need to begin when we study a passage like this with the understanding that when Jesus is delivering this message and he begins with this list of characteristics, if you will, for those that would be his disciple, for those that would be a part of his kingdom, that these things, these eight things that we're going to talk about this morning are eight non-negotiables. That if you are to be a part of his kingdom, if you are a disciple of Jesus, these eight things are a part of who you are. They are not pieces of wisdom or pieces of good idea or, well, I've got strengths and weaknesses and so I can be some of these and some of these I'm just going to leave behind. That these things are non-negotiables for disciples of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're looking at this list and there are eight of them and because there are eight of them, there absolutely will be at least one, probably multiple, as it was for me, as I've studied this week, one at least of these things that you can think about and meditate on to carry with you over the next few days to say there needs to be improvement made in this area. Because these characteristics are non-negotiable when it comes to Jesus. He says, my disciples will be this. Those that are to be in my kingdom will be this. And we have that characteristic, and we are a disciple of Jesus, or we don't. Let's talk about the definition of this word. It was interesting to me. It's a very Bible-y word, beatitude. I I couldn't think of huge other contexts just in our culture where this word fits or is used. It's a very religious word. It's a very Bible-y word. And so I was interested to see if this this word is in, you know, English dictionaries or if it's, or I got to go to, you know, your Bible dictionary to find a definition for it. But the word is in Merriam-Webster. And the definition really struck me this week. We're going to talk about it here and bring it up, and we're going to do it again at the very end of our study. But in Webster's Dictionary, the definition of a beatitude is this, a state of utmost bliss. Now hold that just for a second. Does that sound good to anybody? Sounds good to me. A state of utmost bliss? That sounds phenomenal. That sounds fantastic. I'm interested in that. Do you have interest in that? It's what God offers. It's what he's offering. A state of utmost bliss. What a beautiful definition that is. I'm interested in that. 
And God tells us here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount how to grab hold of it. Eight non-negotiables. Let's take a look at them. The first is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And there are several ways that we could take, you know, a passage such as this, but, but most of them make their way back to the idea of humility. It's in contrast to those who are proud in spirit. Jesus, in dealing with those who are proud in spirit, does a lot with the Pharisees specifically, and we could spend some time in talking about his reaction to their proud in spirit attitude. But followers of his aren't going to be that. They're going to be poor in spirit. They are going to be people who are humble. Because being humble allows me to have that proper understanding of In this world, my place versus God's place. In Philippians chapter 2, there's a really interesting phrase that's found here. Sometimes we miss it because it is so much said about humility in that passage. But when Paul is writing to the brethren in Philippi, and he's going to talk about humility, he will use, I mean, the perfect example of humility Jesus, but listen to what he says about it specifically. Beginning in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, Paul, when he's writing this, there, there is a point to be made about Jesus. And we can be thankful that that is the attitude that he carried. We can be gracious and grateful that this was the life that he led. But the point that Paul is making isn't so much about Jesus. That was already who he was. The point that he's making is you you need to think about you. And he says that mind that was already in Christ, that mind needs to be the mind that you have. I find that phrasing interesting. And the phrasing I find interesting is the idea that he says that mind that was in Christ Jesus, you need to also have. Not that attitude that he had or that characteristic that he had or humility that he had. You need to also be humble, getting specific. He says that mind that Christ had, you need to have. And that showcases that humility is so much more than than just a a characteristic of who we are or an attitude that we carry. It is a mindset that we have. It doesn't affect just one specific scenario that may come up sometimes in our life. And when that scenario pops up, I need to have the attitude of humility. Humility. It's what I carry with me all the time. I'm always thinking of others. 
I'm always thinking of God. So how do we do that? How do we build humility? Well, we're not going to get too fancy this morning. We saw there in Philippians chapter 2, certainly to look to Jesus as an example is a way to do that. But we also need to train our mind to think less of ourself and focus more on God and others. There's a pretty well-known quote from C.S. Lewis about humility that says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a great line, that's why we use it so much. Humility is not about beating yourself down. That's not what humility is. I'm the worst. I'm the back. I'll stand in the back. I'll get out of the way. That's not humility. That's laziness is what that is. That's weakness is what that is. Lazy, uh, laziness, but humility is about thinking of yourself less, putting others in your mind. What a perfect time that we have then right now at the beginning of a year to make a vow to work on that. That this year, this year, I'm going to think and focus on others more. I'm going to think and focus on God more. Opportunities that we have like this to worship, we'll take advantage of those. Opportunities like we had a moment ago in our Bible classes, the first one of the trimester, your mindset of, I'm going to take advantage of those. The opportunities that we'll have on second and fourth Sundays to spend time with brethren, to getting to know them a bit more, I'm going to take advantage of those. I'm going to focus on others over self. Secondly, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn. And Jesus isn't looking for people who are sad all the time. That's not the idea here. It's not mourning over life, but it is here mourning over sin. And I want us to understand the significance of that idea, mourning over sin, is understanding the seriousness of it. That's the point that's being made right here. Look at First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter seven, excuse me. Second Corinthians chapter seven. In verses 9 and 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss uh, from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Uh, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So we see a passage like this, and we ask, well, what is godly sorrow? And Godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that leads us to repentance, looking to God for forgiveness. And I'm going to do that because I understand the seriousness of sin. I'm not in a position to take sin lightly. That's what our culture does. Our culture sugarcoats sin. Our culture takes sin lightly. Our culture pushes sin aside. Our culture categorizes sin. That's what our culture does. But biblically, God demands of his disciples to take sin seriously. So how do we do that? 
How do we mourn as we see here? How do we get in a position to take sin more serious? I think one thing that we can do is we can ask God to help us. Ask God to help us see even our sin. You see, that's what God wants. God wants us to make it to forgiveness land. That's where he wants us to be. That's where he wants us to be. But in order for us to make it here to forgiveness land, we've got to first get to repentance land. But in order for me to get to repentance land, I've got to be here in sin recognizing land. And so God knows I'm never going to make it here to forgiveness land unless I'm recognizing my sin. Now, he wants us there. Do you not think he then wants us to recognize our sin? Certainly he does. Because he wants us in repentance, and he certainly wants us here in forgiveness. So ask him to help you. Ask him to open your heart, open your mind to recognize sin in your life, to help you see the seriousness of sin. A sin isn't something to play around with. That sin isn't something just to mess around with. That sin isn't something to play close to. But the scripture tells us it's something to flee from, to run away from that it needs not to be a part of who we are and the life that we live. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the ones who understand the seriousness of their sin. Thirdly, blessed are the meek. This definition is gentle or submissive, which is the idea that I like. Being meek isn't a weakness. It really, in a lot of ways, is a combination. It's a combination of humility, a combination of patience and obedience to God. Listen, being submissive to the will of God is not always easy. But here's the important understanding. Even though being submissive to to God's will is not always easy, being submissive to the will of God is always for our good. Always. There is no example where following God's will, God is knowing that we will be damaged for that. It's always best. It's always the best way. It's always the profitable way. It's always to the betterment of us, always. Because that's God's desire. And so always following God's will is always doing what is best for us. Does that sound what we want? That's what we want. We understand that as parents, sometimes we give things, uh, commands and do's and don'ts to our children when they, in the moment, may not love it, but we know it is for what is best for them. And sometimes they realize that. Usually it's what's older. My boys, especially, as they've gotten older and are out of the house, multiple times they have talked to us and they've looked back and said things like, I see now why it was, that's what you had us to do at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. I see that now. I didn't love it then, but I see it now. That's what, God want, that's what we can do. We can know that God is looking for us to do what is best. So how do you do that? How, how, how can you be meek? How can you build on that, expand that? One thing I've been thinking about this week is, What an interesting idea 
if looking forward through this year, we practice submission. What does that mean? What do you mean practice submission? It's going to help us. It's going to help us to be meek. So there's a couple of things I want you to think about. Number one, don't force yourself to be the leader every time. You don't have to be the leader every time in every scenario. Don't do that. Don't force yourself to be the leader every single time in every single scenario. Make a choice to put yourself under the leadership of others. And when you do that, you're practicing submission. Now, there are easy opportunities for that, right? Here in the church that we are a part of here at Traders Point, we have three elders who are in position as leaders here. Put yourself under their leadership, completely under their leadership, completely under their direction. Practice submission. When you do that, meekness will grow. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, nobody's arguing that we live in a righteous or wicked world. We live in a wicked world. But the world has always been wicked, always, always been wicked. We live in a wicked world, and even though we don't live in a righteous world, we are still tasked to seek after it. Here's an interesting passage. Look at in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. Listen to this passage, really interesting and really, I think, applicable to where we are today. I'm in Isaiah 33. Read beginning in verse 15. We're going to go through 17. Look at what he says. He who walks righteously. That's where we want to be, right? Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. Now what's interesting is verse 16 sounds fantastic. Dwelling on high, defenses made of rocks, bread and water given, all of that sounds great. But to the one, verse 15, who is walking and seeking righteousness. I love the end of verse 15. The one who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Can we not do that today? Can we not close our ears to wickedness and debauchery? Are we not equipped to close our eyes from evil? Absolutely we are. 
So if we are seeking, right? I mean, hungering and thirsting. It is active. You are seeking righteousness. Even in a wicked world, we are closing our ears. We are closing our eyes to wickedness around us. How do we do that? We take the time to look around. We are surrounded by opportunities for righteousness. Sometimes we miss them because we're we're looking for the big picture opportunities. Sometimes it's little. Opportunities for good. Opportunities to serve. Opportunities to grow. Opportunities to pray. Opportunities to study, as we talked about on Wednesday. Opportunities to help. Opportunities to meditate. Opportunities to walk away. Opportunities to close our eyes and our ears. We're surrounded by opportunities. Seek righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. We are called to follow the example of God, a God who is full of mercy. You remember God's mercy. You'd be ready to extend that mercy to others. And so we talk about, you know, how to be merciful. This is not a difficult one for us. We don't need to spend a lot of time here. But we are trying to establish a merciful perspective. Almost going back to our mindset when we talked about humility a little bit. We're trying to establish a merciful perspective. We're thinking about how God has been merciful to me, even to the point of death, and the mercy that I can extend to others. Maybe that's in the grudge that I hold, laying it aside. The forgiveness that needs to come, giving that forgiveness. The love that needs to be showed to a brother or sister, showing that love. We are following the one who is full of mercy. Second to last, blessed are the pure in heart. Pure in heart. What does that mean? Look over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has, you know, a a good passage here specifically about purity and what purity is all about and even what purity looks like. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 is where I am, beginning in verse 13. Beginning in verse 13, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Uh, This passage really context goes all the way to the end of the chapter. I'm not going to read all of that, but listen to a couple of pieces along the way. Verse 13, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust, as in your ignorance, but he who called you as holy, also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Look down beginning of verse 22 now. Drop down a little bit. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another with a pure heart. You read a passage like this, and we're trying to ask what does a pure heart mean or what does it look like? It is sincere, selfless love for God and for others. 
So how do we do that? We think about David in Psalm 51, where he says, create in me a pure heart, clean heart. Asking God to help. Thinking of God, thinking of others, living a life of holiness. Finally, and then we'll pull everything together, blessed are the peacemakers. We're called to be peacemakers. We're told even to pursue peace in multiple passages. One, I'll give you Psalm 34 and verse 14 if you're writing things down. Pursuing peace. That's not always an easy task for us, especially for those that are opposing to us. But we are called to be peacemakers, emulating Jesus, the Prince of Peace. It is the kind of life that we are to have, living at peace with the ones around us. That is what we should strive for. And at the very end, all of the areas above. If we're striving in all of these areas, and and I said before, uh, they're all non-negotiables. And so if we are striving in all the areas mentioned above, persecution will come. It is inevitable. The Christian walk is against the walk of the world. And because of that, there absolutely will be resistance. We see it all the time in hallways. Maybe you're at school and and the class is out and it seems like the flood of people is walking one direction, but you you need to get on the other side of that. And you're trying to bounce through, you know, the middle of that because nobody's walking in that direction. Everybody's walking this direction. I get that every single Sunday morning and every single Wednesday night. I get that. I usually leave something or I need to pick up something in my office, which is in the very corner, and I need to walk down that hall where all the parents and children are walking this way. And you're facing that, right? When you're walking different from everyone else, there absolutely will be resistance. But it's a perspective thing. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, Peter makes the point that it's good. It's a good thing to face persecution. So the question for us, what if I'm being persecuted? What if I'm doing all these things and I'm being persecuted? I'll tell you one thing to be thinking about that'll help. Don't be surprised by that. Don't Don't be blown away by that. If we are expecting that, and we wouldn't be surprised by that, we're in a position to handle it. Let's close. You think about these non-negotiables. All the things that we had listed before. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, taking persecution. All of those are things that God says. If you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, this will be a part of your life. Now listen, he could have absolutely said, you will be these things because that's what I said, because I'm God. 
He could have played the because I said so card. He could always play that card, but rarely does. Rarely does. And doesn't here in this passage. You think about how he could do that, and he has the right to just command these things, demand these things of us and let it go. But do you remember the beginning? The beatitude definition? A state of utmost bliss. You see, when we went through all eight of those beatitudes, I'm sure you took notice, we just covered the first half of that verse. But each and every one of those follows with a blessing. Think about these things. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be filled. They shall obtain mercy. They shall be called sons of God. So as we close, a question for you. Do, do, do these, these blessings interest you? I mean, they do me. And God says, the kind of people that follow me, that's a part of my kingdom, that these things are a part of their life, this is what their life looks like. Utmost bliss. It's a powerful reward. A powerful promise. But it is only for those who are followers of his. And so as we close, let's be thinking about those things. Take a look again at Matthew chapter 5, over the next couple of days, read over those things again. Be thinking about ways that you can walk forward in those areas. Because you're interested in those blessings. You're interested in that promise that God has made. You want to be a follower of His. You want to be a part of His kingdom. You want to be a partaker of His promises. What a great thing to think about at the beginning of our year. I'd encourage you to do so, as I will as well, and we'll walk in the same direction together. That'll be easier, won't it? I look forward to this year walking in that direction with you. Marcus is going to lead a song of invitation. It gives us that opportunity to be thinking about where we are with God. We've talked a lot about that really this morning. There's no other relationship more important than that one. That is the defining relationship. And there's no better time to be thinking about that relationship again than right now. Let's make sure now at the beginning of this good year that it's going to be the best year ever because your relationship with God will be stronger than it has ever been. What an incredible year that would be. Maybe we can help you in that relationship. Maybe it is that your sin separates you from God and through the waters of baptism that sin can be washed away. Vowing your allegiance to him. What a powerful thing that would be today. Maybe there's another way that we can help. If we can, you let us know as we stand and sing.